Good morning. My name's Narelle. I'm going to do the Bible reading now. It's Isaiah chapter 61, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 11. So you can find it on your devices or in a Bible. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day where we can come together to worship you, to learn more about you, and to fellowship with each other. Lord, we are constantly overwhelmed by your great love for us and for the ways you were revealed to the prophets of old. Lord, thank you that we can see that the things that were prophesied so long ago were fulfilled when you came to earth to live amongst us. Father, there's so much in this passage this morning. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds that we might understand you better that we might grow in our love for you and become the people you want us to be. Lord, be with James as he opens your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, Love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Alrighty, 
Well, as we said, this is our last week in the book of Isaiah. And I want to start uh, by leaning into something that Chris introduced to us a couple of weeks back uh, when he was thinking about the idea of the the suffering servant, this big figure that we have here in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Chris got us to think about the heroes that we see in popular culture. You know, I I can't see John Wayne without just, you know, imagining his walk as he comes in and... Well, partner, you know, whatever it is. Uh, Maverick's my guy, though, uh, my generation, that sort of stuff. I like to always imagine him just running, because that's what Tom Cruise does. He runs really, really well. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, guys like Thor, the, these big, you know, swinging hammer guys and all that sort of stuff. There's these pictures of heroism that oftentimes looks like a, a violent confrontation with evil or some sort of problem and that sort of thing. And then we've got some more you know, classically feminine style heroes and that sort of stuff, whether you're winning at love or, as Chris said, winning at the box office or just being the best girl boss you can be. We've got all these pictures, right, of, of, of heroes and that sort of stuff. And, and we can reflect on these as kind of like iconic heroes. But I think it's also good for us to recognize that there are closer to home visions that we have for our life that look a little bit closer to the heroism that maybe we want to envision for ourselves. Building a good family with a lovely, you know, idyllic home that we can build something good within. That we can have relationships and adventure and and fun and that we can live out this version of success. That we can be climbing corporate ladders and doing well and looking great and finding success in all these sorts of different ways. And so we kind of have this this, this tension a little bit in our culture where we have these iconic visions of what it looks like to be heroic in all these different ways, but we also have these very grounded day-to-day versions of what the, the good life looks like and which we aspire to. But as we're going to see in this passage, there's something that God says about his people that fits within these worlds, that's not against them, but which provides a nuance that is distinctly Christian and which really only truly applies to believers and followers in Jesus. And so it fits in these worlds, but it's this role of speaking and proclaiming that can be done in all these different spaces, which is an act of heroism that our culture does not recognize, and yet, as we as the people of God, too often underrate and undervalue. So that's where we're going. Give you a little bit of a teaser, a sampler, but let's, let's dive into the text and see how we get there from God's Word itself. So as you've said, we've been working through the book of Isaiah. If you're joining us in here in week nine, I'm just going to recap briefly a little bit of context so you know what we've been looking at. Isaiah was this Old Testament prophet preaching about 2,700 years ago or so. Uh, He was preaching during the reigns of those kings in the middle period there. But he was often looking forward to this time after this period of exile for this southern kingdom of Judah where he was. And so we sort of use this as a map in our growth group uh, companions and that sort of thing to, to figure out what's going on in this massive book, 66 chapters. We're just looking at a few passages And we've seen that the event of the exile was this massive earth-shattering moment for God's people. Basically, in this period of their history, they get taken captive. They get taken away from the promised land that God had given to them. They get taken to this nation of Babylon. The temple is destroyed. They lose the divine line of kings that somebody from King David's family had always sat upon. It was like this earth-shattering moment for them in terms of losing their land, their temple, and even their sense of God's blessing with them. 
But now, in the second half of the book of Isaiah, hope is being renewed through this figure mainly of this, this servant that we've seen in a few different passages. And the whole thing with the servant is this idea that you know, God's servant is this guy that's going to come to them, he'll be rejected and killed, but he lives again, and it's through this work of the servant that God's people are going to be restored and built back up again. And so we have this picture here of the servant there in the middle, and, it, and, and it's through him that we, that we have this hope for a new Jerusalem, a new people of God, a new vision for him, and it's all coming through this servant, and there's all these blessings that he's, he is going to bring to God's people. So that's where we're at in this great big book. A lot of context in a small amount of time, um, but that's what we're, we're dealing with here. And this passage here opens with these words. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And this idea of the spirit being upon this figure is kind of code for a bunch of references that have already happened through the previous 60 chapters to this interesting figure that it turns out actually seems to be the same guy, despite the different names that have been given to him. So we saw way back in Isaiah 11, this guy from the the shoot of Jesse, that that was King David's father, so somebody in, in David's family line, and the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. But also we saw in the servant songs this constant reference to the servant and where God's spirit is on him also. And so when we have this figure now who says the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, we can sort of link him back to these previous pictures of these heroic figures that are going to come. And this time he says, because the Lord has anointed me. And so oftentimes this figure here in chapter 61 gets referred to as as God's anointed one. But it certainly seems like we've got these little codes that are helping us to see that it's someone from David's family, this servant who is going to suffer for us, and one who has been chosen by God. And what's he been chosen to do? Well, it's to proclaim good news to the poor. He's been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, this is pretty amazing stuff if you were one of God's people in exile or maybe just past it, where you're still in this period of either captivity or maybe just starting to rebuild. But there's no way that God's people were yet in their you know, former days of glory. The temple's still in ruins. God's people still have no clear sense of their identity and, and who they are with him. There's all these problems, and yet here is this figure who's going to come proclaiming good news, binding the brokenhearted, bringing freedom, and taking people out of darkness. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, all these blessings, but also the day of vengeance of our God. And to comfort all who mourn. That there's justice coming, that God is not going to let justice go unpunished, but vengeance is coming against those who have dishonored him. Nevertheless, He's come to bring comfort to all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Zion's just another word for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And so he's come to provide for those who grieve in Zion. What's he going to do? He's going to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. They've been in mourning. They've been in grief. That's what the ashes is a sign of. But now they're going to have a crown of beauty. Instead of dirty faces, they're going to be you know, getting their glow up and looking good again. They're going to have the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is an incredible message of hope to people in captivity, in darkness, in pain, in despair. Better days are coming is the message. 
And the very thing that led them into this period of pain, their sin is going to be dealt with also because it says that they will be called oaks of righteousness, God's people. There'll be a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor where previously they had failed to live up to all the glory that God had bestowed upon them. They had failed to to live well as God's people, but now again they will be oaks of righteousness. And a time of rebuilding is coming. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. This period of exile lasts at least 70 years and there's some extended stuff that happens after that before they can start to rebuild. But you know, it's decade after decade after decade of places being devastated, but that time is coming to an end. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And while they've been taken captive by the nations, a time is coming when strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You're working somebody else's fields right now, living in their cities and their nation, but a time is coming when they will come to you and work for you. And you'll be called again priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. Ministers, you know, we translate it here probably because of the context with priests and everything, but it, it's the same word as, as servants. You'll be named servants of our God. You'll feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. This is a passage of great inversion. Remember, they're in exile, in captivity, in darkness, no temple, no land, lost sense of God's blessing, and now everything he's talking about is going to be overturned. You're going to be back rebuilding what's been lost. I will be with you again. I will call you my people. You're going to live holy lives. You're going to be righteous. It's a massive inversion from where you are now. And it's this anointed one through whom these blessings are going to come, who links back to the servant, links back to somebody from David's family. He says, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. He means a double portion of blessing or grace there. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. While you seem to have been separated and cast out, now your blessings are coming to you. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. It's a return to the blessings of old. All these promises that were made to King David's family and everything else that had come before him is now returning back to them. And after this promise, God now himself speaks as to why he's doing this. For I, God, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. I have not yet given up. I'm going to be with those who are truly following me. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. Remember, again, they've been in exile. They've been in captivity. They've been in darkness. For generations, their offspring have suffered. Their offspring have not known the Lord. Their offspring have not known the glory days of old. But now a promise comes to them that says, your children and your children's children will know that I am with them. And others who look at them and watch them will know too that these are the people that God has blessed. Now we see the, cert, the anointed one start to speak again. And he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul, my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make we'll type it there. So the sovereign Lord will dwell will so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's a glorious vision of what God is doing. You can see that that's why we've put in this the title the whole way through. The first half of the book, there is lots of stuff on judgment in all sorts of different ways, and hope is the minor note. But in the second half of the book, God's judgment is still there. There is a day of vengeance of God upon all those who do wrong, but that message of hope just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's all focused on on this anointed servant who these words are are spoken about. All all these great things that he's going to come and do and that he's going to proclaim. And this passage is really divided up between these words that are spoken of about the servant, but then these words that are spoken of about God's people who, who follow him, who will also be servants of God in a different way. And so that's sort of the, the, the juxtaposition that's going on in this passage. When I say juxtaposition, I mean the comparison between two different ideas. There's the work that the servant is doing, but then there's all these blessings and things that the servants who follow him are going to have and going to know. That's what this passage is really all about. It's talking about the servant and how great he is, but then also about all these incredible blessings that are going to come to those who serve the Lord. That's what's really going on here. And and sort of as you work through it in growth groups, I encourage you to try and recognize those different passages and and recognize who's speaking at what time because the message is is different and it's a little bit extended. So just, just work through that. Now here's the thing. There's no surprises at this point. We've, we've spent nine weeks now in Isaiah. We, we know that all of these passages constantly point forth towards Jesus. And we've seen how again and again the New Testament authors love to pull on the words of Isaiah, including Jesus himself. But perhaps none so as prominently as what Jesus does with these verses himself. This is what he says in Luke chapter 6. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, that was the, the Jewish day of rest, He went into the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Okay, gotta remember these things, these are big old scrolls. Okay? Like big long things. Isaiah is a great big book. We don't know how many scrolls it took up, but it but it would have been a few. Okay? And so he unrolls it, and he's like, shh. That's what I'm looking for. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now you can imagine why, right? Jesus has handed the scroll. He would have had to look. Okay, everyone's sort of waiting for him to find this passage and all that sort of stuff. He gets there and he reads out this small little snippet that speaks of this figure who is going to come and bring so much to God's people and everyone, they're, they're, they're fast, they're watching, what is he now going to say? What, what is this miracle worker? What is this figure of growing notoriety going to say? And he says, today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the guy, the anointed one that we have waited centuries for, the one that if you know the book of Isaiah, who is from David's family, the servant of the Lord upon whom his spirit rests, now that I'm here, this is being fulfilled. And what's fascinating is, is that he just quotes from from the first half of that little speech that we have there in the Isaiah section. He stops at proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and does not go on at this moment to the day of vengeance of our God, which is really interesting because Jesus understood what his ministry was first time round. This proclamation of the gospel. Now, we also know in Jesus' wider teaching that he speaks about how he will return to judge. He will also be there at the day of vengeance. He'll also be there when God's final judgment comes. But for now, he understood his ministry and his work to be these proclamations. Good news for the poor, binding the brokenhearted, light for the blind, freedom from captivity. That's what he came to bring. And of course, that's what he accomplishes through his work on the cross. Because the freedom from captivity that Jesus ultimately brings is not freedom from human prisons. It's not freedom from foreign nations. It's not freedom from any political or corporate abuse or anything like that that we might experience. It's freedom from the law of sin and death. It's freedom from the fact that even though we've all sinned, we've all messed up, we're all broken in these many and varied ways. And and as a result of that, we are separate from, from God's blessings. Christ has come to set us free from all that so that we may indeed be oaks of righteousness. And when he comes back, he's absolutely going to judge. But for now, we need to recognize that when he talks about the blessings that are coming, there's a, there's a present experience of this stuff. And so, like I said, we've got oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. We've got all these different ideas that there's partial fulfillment now in this world as well. So we've got references to the land and all that sort of stuff. Normally when we take Old Testament stuff that refers to the land, we don't think about that being a current blessing. We think about when Jesus returns and the new creation that he's going to create. And so as we read through these words here about the blessings that God's people is going to have through this anointed one, we need to recognize that some things have been fulfilled now in Christ. Some things really clearly are ours, being now oaks of righteousness. But there's still a future that we look forward to of blessings in the land and the new creation that God's going to make when Jesus returns. One of the things that we have now is that we'll be called priests and be named ministers of our God. But instead of shame, we receive a double portion of grace. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. What's the inheritance that we have now? It's our salvation. When We read that in Ephesians 1 with Paul's writing there. And of course, we're going to have everlasting joy. So there's lots here that we can sort of pull out. We could focus on that sort of stuff. But I, but I think here that, that one of the big ideas for us is this idea of being priests and ministers or servants, as we saw before. Because as far as us here who are believing in Jesus, 
this idea of us being priests and servants is something that the New Testament comes back to a few times. So I think it's worth us grabbing this one and unpacking this a little bit and what that means for us. So for example, we saw in 1 Peter last term where Peter wrote, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, very suffering servant sounding sort of stuff. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's this idea that all those who believe and trust in Jesus, we bring offerings of praise, we bring offerings of obedience to him now, and these are priestly activities. And this idea of being ministers is, again, one that the New Testament authors come to again and again. So in 2 Corinthians, we see here uh, that Paul writes, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers, servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul likes to call his co-workers ministers or servants all the time. He says of Epaphras there in the second half, that all these things you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Now, little warning, uh, every time that you see the word servant in the New Testament, that doesn't mean the same thing as minister in the Isaiah passage. Does anybody know what oftentimes the word servant could be translated as in, in these types of verses? Not a rhetorical question. I'm testing you. I heard it. Slave, good job. I don't know if you were the first person, but you claimed it, so rewards to you. Um, all right. Sometimes it's slave. It's not always the same. So every time you see the word servant, don't immediately think it's a reference to this Isaiah here. But if you see the word minister in your translations, it probably is a reference to this servant idea from Isaiah. Or even if it's not a direct link, it's the same sort of idea. So you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He says of Tychicus that he is also a faithful minister and fellow servant slash slave in the Lord, this sort of idea. But this is the one that I really want us to, to focus on because we see in Romans this idea of priest and minister or servant being brought together with a very definite application of what that means. So it says here, Paul writing in Romans 15 says this, Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the, gra- the grace God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. That was Paul's job. He'd been sent out by God to tell them the good news of Jesus, but not to the Jewish people, but to all the other nations. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So that the Gentiles might become an offering holy, sorry, an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might want to push back and say, well, that was Paul's job to proclaim the gospel and that sort of stuff as a priest and a minister. Paul says that was something that was God was given to him. But I want to push back then and say, but this is the thing, this responsibility of being priest and minister, priest and servant, is something that Isaiah says is going to be given to all of God's people. And as we look at the start of this passage and we see what the ministry of the anointed one was, what is he doing again and again and again? He is proclaiming, proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And so as we, God's people, seek to serve him, we follow the example of the servant there and the words that 
he spoke of what his mission was. To do all these things ourselves as we seek to be ministers and priests. And here's where I want us to, to, to push us and, and to think about what I was talking about at the start here now in terms of what we typically think is what we should be focusing on and the vision of the good life that we build for ourselves. And it requires a little bit of nuance, so I need you guys to think hard and stick with me on this, okay? As we look to build these things, these are not bad things. It's a beautiful picture. As we, as we look to, to build these sorts of things, friendship, relationship, adventure, enjoyment of God's creation, all the great things that we can do in this world, we need to remember that as good as these things are, these are not the roles and responsibilities that God has given to us primarily. Now, the role to, to be a priest and to be a servant of God exists in this space. It exists in this space. But if we forget about this role to be priest and servant in these, spa- in these spaces, we end up with a really different picture. Instead of you know, all, all these good things that are blessings from the Lord that come from a focus on Jesus first and foremost, our old ways of sin will rule and, and we will self-destruct on all these good things. Instead of fellowship and, and fun, we will have brokenness and hurt and pain. And we need to understand two things, is that we have a responsibility to speak God's word into these sorts of situations in our own lives, in our own worlds, in our own families, in our own relationships, that we have to keep that focus there for ourselves. But we can't forget the mission that the anointed one carries is not just to proclaim it to us, but to proclaim it to others also. And so when we talk about proclaiming good news to the poor, when we talk about proclaiming freedom from captivity, when we talk about freedom, when we talk about bringing light into darkness and all that sort of stuff, when we bang on about preaching the gospel, when we talk about proclaiming the good news, when we talk about making Christ-like disciples, it is to rescue people from sin and death, but it's also to rescue people from this. Now, it's not... It's not the primary thing, and this is what what I'm I'm trying to get you guys to see the nuance in this, okay? We don't proclaim the gospel to make happy families. We don't proclaim the gospel so that we can have an awesome life here and now. But at the same time, we need to recognize that as we seek to follow the Lord, these helpful visions become actually something truer and more real than, than what we see on Instagram because we understand that these things are good, but they are not the best. Because heaven's not going to look like this. We're not going to be given in marriage. We're not going to be having children. That's not the picture that we have of the new creation. In so many ways, the, 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 the human biological 
you know, example of, of humanness of, of father and mother ends. That, that's not a continuing role for us. It might look a little bit more like this, actually, in terms of lots of people from different places enjoying relationship together and all that sort of stuff. But the key thing that I'm trying to get to you guys is, is that if you see people around you in this sort of situation, the hope that we bring to them is the good news of the gospel. And so that's why we, you know, we, we talk about these different things that we've set up here in church where we, we want to be making friends and, and be out there in the world, in our workplace or at school or wherever it is, because we want to be doing this speaking role. It doesn't look vastly different. It doesn't mean that I don't look like I'm still successful in my profession because I care about what I do and whatever I do, I work at it for the Lord, not for my own reward, but for, for his glory. But as I do all these different things that God's called me to, I cannot lose sight of the fact that I've been made a priest and servant of God. And I, and guys, I, I need you guys to get this because I'm pretty sure that if you, you know, had a friend from a different sort of faith background or something like that and they, and they said, who's your priest or minister, who would you think of? me. And that's true on one level, but I want more and more for us as the people of God that as awkward as it could be in a casual conversation when someone says, priest and minister, who's that for you? And you say, oh, it's all of us. It's one of those awkward conversation moments, so that's not what I was talking about. But I kind of want it so grounded in us that that is where our first thought goes to. That we, the people of God, have been called to be priests and servants who proclaim the gospel in all these different spaces to see people come into God's kingdom, and that this is the mission that we carry and share together. And over and above everything else, I want us to realize that this is the role that God has given to us. Guys, I, I will... I will I'm going to keep talking about this until it's no longer true. But we live here in this place, in these suburbs, with certain visions of the good life that are powerful and will take us captive. And the vision of the happy family home, the vision of the adventurous life, the vision of corporate success, all of those things will take captive our hearts and stop us from doing this role of priest and servant if we are not actively seeking to be this again and again and again. This is not something that will happen by accident. Jesus went through that scroll. He looked for it and he said, this is the thing that I'm focusing on because this is what you need to know. And for us, in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, we won't be priests and servants unless we do it on purpose. And we won't proclaim good news to the poor. We won't bind up the brokenhearted. We won't proclaim freedom for captives. For captives, We won't release people from darkness. We won't proclaim the year of the Lord's favor unless we do it on purpose. And so I need you guys to take a look at your lives. Not, not, not in guilt, not in shame. We've seen here that in the grace of God, there is no shame. There's a double inheritance of grace. We don't do this out of sense of guilt not because we're condemned, but because we know God's grace to us, because we understand what he's done, because we've been set free, because we've seen the glorious anointed one and the suffering servant and all that he's been willing to do for us, we realize that, man, this, this world just doesn't get it and it needs a message of, of hope that, that we can bring, that we can give to them, that we proclaim to ourselves. 
And so we need to look at the way that we're living. We need to look at where, where, where does my time go? Again, not to condemn. I'm not, this, this, this is my big concern right now. My, my concern is that you will immediately start to feel guilty and that, and that you'll be tempted, oh, you know, I don't really want to deal with this or, or you'll deny it or something like that. You are completely forgiven in the grace of God. And what that means is you can evaluate truly. If you've been making mistakes, if you feel immediately condemned just as we put these stuff up there and all that sort of stuff, you need to right now remind yourself again of God's promises that you are forgiven completely. And what that does is it gives us a clean slate for us to now say, actually, you know what? We've been focused a lot on finances and building up this so that we can achieve these goals. And we haven't actually been preaching the gospel to our kids that much. That I've been saving up for travels and I've been saving up to see the world and all that sort of thing. And I love travel, but I've never once thought of of going on mission to, to spend my money that way. That, 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 you know, I, I operate in all these high-powered places and, I, and I've got friends in all these different spheres and all that sort of stuff, but never once have I told them about Jesus. And we can honestly own those things and say, Lord, you know what, I, I haven't been fulfilling this role that you've given me. And know his love. Know that you're cool. That you were never righteous because of what you did in the first place. But knowing that we've been made righteous, now, now we have this awesome responsibility to, to serve God, to be obedient in all these different places. I'm so glad that we brought in some new members today. I hope more than anyone else that they, they, they know that this is what we're about because we've been talking about it in classes and all, and all this sort of stuff. Because I want to say this really, really clearly. I love you guys. But if you're not on board with this, this probably isn't going to be the place for you long term. Because this, this is just what we've decided that we are about. And if you want to be on board, then let's get to it for real. Let's not play the game. Let's, let's not play the game of showing up on Sunday and putting on a good face and, and making it look good. Because again, that, that idealized family home, man, that looks like Christian living, doesn't it? how happy we all are, rejoicing and blessing and all that sort of stuff. Man, it can, it can look good on the outside. But we've got to make sure that we're pressing deeper. Because those things are good, but they're not what we're meant to be about, not first and foremost. So I don't mind us feeling the weight of this one this morning, because I think we've got some work to do. All of us, me included. This is the world that we live in. We have to make different choices. So I'm going to pray now. I'm going to let this one hang, let this one sit. Hopefully, I'm going to pray for this, these words to follow you during the week when we finish up. And let's do the work that we need to do. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for this awesome responsibility that we have been given to be priests and, and servants, priests and ministers for you. To, to love and serve you in this way to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from captivity, to proclaim light to those in darkness. What an awesome mission we've been given. And so we pray, Father, that we wouldn't be moved off course to to focus on, on good things in this world at the expense of this awesome responsibility that you've given to us. 
Lord, that we would be distinct amongst the world around us because we're focused on the mission that you've given to us, even as we rejoice in all the other things that we get to do. As we build careers and, and seek to serve you in them, as we grow our families and our homes and as we explore your world and have adventures and all this good stuff that is a gift from you. Lord, may we never forget that in each of those spaces we also have this responsibility to be priests and servants for you, to proclaim your word. And we pray, Father, you would work through us that, that, our, that, that your word, as we looked at last week, would not return empty-handed, but it would find the hearts and the souls that it needs to in order that they too might come and join us in your kingdom. And we pray, Father, we would do this generation after generation so that we might know you well until Jesus returns. And we thank you for this in his precious name. Amen.